The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. We talked about the posture last week, so they bring your whole attention, your whole heart to the body. Take your time, listen, adjust. See what feels like the appropriate posture for tonight. This balancing between relative comfort and uh, an uprightness that supports wakefulness. <clears throat> and while we're waiting for people to get settled and get the cell phones all the way off and take care of any business, You can take a few longer, deeper breaths, just easing your way back into relationship with the body, having an honest, intimate, a real relationship with sensation now. The sensations of sitting, the way it is here in the body, Not trying to fix the body, just trying to meet it. Oh, it's like this now. Is it safe to relax, to soften, to receive these sensations that are here in the body? And remember the uprightness we're talking about. It's not really straight, the spine. The spine has its natural curves. It's not rigid. And whatever we're doing in our meditation practice, it doesn't require the body to be tight. We're cultivating this sense of being close, being right in the middle, being kind and forgiving and patient with the bodily sensations. This sense that more than any other place or any other time. This is the real coming home, being right here, right now, open, feeling the body as it actually is which means feeling the breath coming in, feeling the sensations of the breath going out. And as we sense that rhythm of breathing in the body, do a simple body scan, making sure that 
There's a willingness to be in touch with the whole body. Breathing in, feeling the whole head, the face. Breathing out, feeling the head and face, the jaw, the eyes. And do that a few times, just with the area and the head and face. So we're realizing that it's safe to be open, sensitive to the sensations here in the head, throughout the face, breathing in, willing to be open and sensitive, breathing out, allowing these sensations to be the way they are. the tongue, the lips. And when you feel like you have a good relationship with the sensations in the head and face, then let the attention come down into the throat and the neck, sides of the neck, top of the shoulders and shoulder joints. And again, just take a few breaths here Simply breathing in and feeling whatever's here. Breathing out, allowing these sensations here to be the way they are. Having an honest, real, Connection with the sensations in the shoulders and in the neck. Not afraid of any tension that might be there. Learning to relax and trust because sometimes it feels like this. And then move down into both arms and both hands when you're ready. And again, just a few breaths in and out, learning how to be intimate, to relate in a simple and honest way with the arms and hands, the sensations here, just as they are. And this is just a regular, easy breath in and out. And using the rhythm of the breath, the sensations of the breath to remind the mind to be open to the arms and hands. And to let these sensations be. And let's do it with the upper half of the torso, the trunk. Breathing in, sensitive. Breathing out, allowing all of these sensations in the rib cage, the heart, chest, upper back. Just allowing these sensations to be. You might even notice a subtle 
expansion and contraction in the ribcage, corresponding to the breathing. Most importantly, this willingness to open to the sensations here in the upper torso. And then when you're ready, doing the same with the lower half, from the diaphragm down, mid-back down to the floor of the pelvis, including the groin, the hips, and all the internal organs in the abdomen. Allowing awareness just to settle here, soak in here. And feel what we feel. And from the hip sockets, feeling both legs, of course the thighs first, including any of the ordinary touch points where you feel some contact or pressure, including the clothes against the skin, feeling the bend of the knees and the shins and the calves all the way down to the heels and the bottoms of the feet, the toes, and the sides and tops of the feet as well. Is it possible to have a simple and honest, even intimate connection now with both legs and feet? Breathing in, being sensitive, And breathing out, allowing these sensations to be the way they are. In a funny way, we're learning to re-inhabit the body, or as the Buddha calls it, mindfulness immersed in the body. So taking some time feeling the whole body as you breathe in, willing to be aware, willing to be sensitive to the whole body as you breathe out. So let every in-breath, every ordinary out-breath be a gentle reminder to be aware of the whole body sitting. Undefended. Willing to be open or even exposed, you could say 
to the sensations here now in the body. Not afraid to be sensitive. Get very interested in this continuity of awareness of the whole body. Breathing in, sensitive to the whole body. While breathing out, sensitive to the whole body. One half breath at a time.
So we have our anchor, this primary meditation object, breathing in sensitive to the whole body, physicality of the whole body, breathing out a willingness to be sensitive or open to the sensations of the whole body. And then probably pretty regularly the mind will be disturbed or distracted by some predominant experience, wanting to plan, wanting to think about this or that or fantasize or remember or disturbed by a particular sound, a particular sight, mental image. Doesn't really matter, but distractions arise. Remember, distractions are just another experience being known. So instead of being disturbed by distraction or resisting distraction, our practice is just remembering that distraction is just something, another something being known. So in those moments, simply recognize what's being known. And you can even name it silently in your mind. Oh, thinking is being known. Or hearing is being heard, being known. So in that sense, the continuity of present moment awareness continues in a very natural way. We haven't turned distraction into a problem or a break in the continuity of awareness. And just be aware of what's predominant as long as it's really predominant. And when that particular distraction fades and the mind is no longer drawn to knowing something, just come back. Feel the next breath coming in or going out and remember, oh yeah, sensing the whole body is like this. Being aware of the sensations of the sitting body is like this now. And here we're practicing not being confused or reactive to any pain in the body. And also not confused by the subtlety when the body or I should say when the concentration gets better, the bodily sensations might seem very light, almost indistinct. But that's how the body feels as you're breathing in and breathing out. Just that light, vibratory quality sometimes. And other times the body feels like twisted steel, really painful. But whatever it is, Is it possible to simply be awake, be open, just for the duration of breathing in, and then just through the duration of breathing out? That willingness to be awake or sensitive, and allowing the sensations to be the way they are right now.
It's okay to relax. And if you're finding it impossible to relax, it might be that the pain is too strong for you to remain interested and relaxed with. So then in a quiet way, in a mindful way, make the necessary adjustment, including very quietly moving from a sitting to a standing posture with the knees a little bent, if that's what helps. Now for the last two or three minutes. It's a useful habit to shift gears a little. If your eyes have been closed, let them gently open. So we're still doing the best we can to sit still in a relaxed way, soften the body, 
And just being aware that hearing is being known. And for a few seconds now, just attune to the experience of hearing. It's not like we have to figure something out like what we're hearing, but just being undefended and open to the experience of hearing. And in the same way, seeing is also happening. And again, without feeling you have to look at anything in particular, just realize that the eyes are seeing, that seeing is happening. Shape and color and form, that'd be really simple. The mind is sensitive to hearing and seeing, to a lesser degree smelling and tasting might be happening in a subtle way, probably not too strong. And of course, sensing the sensations, big sense of touch is being known. In Buddhism, we call this body, these five physical senses. So in a very straightforward, simple way, recognizing these five sensitivities, body is being known, it's like this now, seeing, hearing, touching, the exposure these five sensitivities, it's like this now. And the mind is also sensitive to mental activity, thinking and emoting. So just notice the mood, notice the thoughts, any emotion. It's not about controlling or trying to have a particular mind state just recognizing that there is this experience of mind, mental activity. It's more subtle than body. And the interesting, the important question is, can this all be okay, this activity of body and mind? So for just a few more seconds, just explore. Is it safe to relax right now, to be open and relaxed? Sensitive and allowing. Take your time, adjust your body, move around a little. Welcome back, everyone. 
I know it's no small accomplishment to get ourselves back. We all have busy lives. And so it's really it's great just to commit, give ourselves to these six weeks, showing up here whenever you can, doing at least a little practice, formal practice every day, even if it's already late at night and we didn't get ourselves to our chair or to our cushion, just to sit down for a few minutes before you go to bed, even if it's sitting right there in your bed. And just remember the intention, oh yeah, I'm cultivating this new habit, I mean new in the sense that we're doing it consciously, to learn to be right in the middle, right, with awareness, with this mindful awareness. And remember, it's not the same as being conscious, because we're pretty much conscious all day long, but it's this reflective awareness where I'm aware of what the mind is knowing. I'm aware that the mind is knowing. You can just check it out. Because you may not be able to articulate it, and that's okay, but you do want to be able to find your way back. So like any moment during the day when you remember, oh yeah, there's this thing, mindfulness, that I'm interested in, you should be able to Notice like what it means to you right then in that moment to be mindful. Because sometimes we wrongly think, oh, I've got to come back to my breath, or I have to come back to my body. But that's not, we use the breath, we use the body in support of being mindfully aware. But you don't need the sensations of the body or the sensations of the breath to be aware, mindfully aware. You just need to know what the mind is doing right now, or what the mind is knowing right now. So, again, I'll ask you, what's the mind knowing right now? So it might be that you're aware of a little self-consciousness because of the question. Or like, you could be reflectively aware there's some confusion now. Or you might be reflectively aware of that, like some of us have that old imprint, like, i got to get the right answer. And so you might notice that little neurotic pattern. Oh yeah, what is the right answer? What am I knowing? Is it me or my mind? Or are they the same? Right? And then if you're reflectively aware, you'll know, well, that's just confusion or that's just doubt. Well, whatever it is, it's that mental activity. Like if you don't have a, and you don't have to mentally label it in your mind, you just want to be aware this is what the mind's doing, or this is what the mind is knowing. It's almost like we're discovering that there's this particular capacity of the mind to be, as I've been calling it, reflectively aware, as if there's a mirror that all it's doing is reflecting what the mind is knowing. So there's normal, what we would call consciousness, the mind is sensitive to the five physical senses, not necessarily all of them at the same time. Maybe we're really sensitive to touch in one moment and sound in the next moment and sight and thought. But then that there's this other capacity of mind that is sort of mirroring which of the senses And in Buddhism, there are six because there's the sensitivity to mental activity. That's the sixth. And then the five physical senses. And then there's this capacity of the mind 
to be reflectively aware, oh, this is what attention is attending to right now. This is what consciousness is conscious of right now. This is what the mind's knowing, or this is what the mind is doing. It's knowing this. It's knowing that. It's knowing this emotion, or it's knowing this sound, or it's knowing this thought. Right? So it's it's really, in, <clears throat> in terms of how the Buddha came to understand it, it's what allows learning, especially the deepest kind of learning, what we often call insight. That's why Common Ground Meditation Center, coming out of the early Buddhist lineage, Theravada Buddhism, it's often here in the West called insight meditation, and sometimes we use the Pali word, Vipassana meditation, you might have heard those terms, right? So in the West, there's insight or Vipassana meditation centers around the country and around the West. And it's we use that word insight because with this mirror-like reflective knowing, mindful awareness, we start waking up. We start seeing aspects of the mind we haven't seen before. That's the whole point. Because if we're not having insight, then we're condemned to doing what we've done before and getting the same results we've done, we've gotten before. So if you've noticed that you know you, you do something and it really doesn't turn out very well, whether it's in terms of a relationship or handling something at work or handling something with your family, but if there's no reflective awareness we're likely to repeat that same pattern again and again. But when there's that mindful awareness, that reflective awareness, there's this possibility of comprehension, which is really part of wisdom. It's like wisdom is connecting the dots. This arose, this arose, this arose, this arose, right? It's comprehending, it's connecting the dots. And what does it see? It sees how it is that I get all bound up with suffering. How it is that in other moments, the heart, the mind's released, not bound up, not tied up in knots, not reactive. Right? And it's not, because it doesn't help for me to say to myself, Mark, stop suffering. (laughs) Or say to you, stop making me suffer. That doesn't change anything. That makes you defensive, and it makes me defensive when I say, stop that, you know, to myself, right? But what actually helps in this non-judging way to have this simple, not so easy initially to build the momentum, but this simple reflective knowing, you know, so then we see like we're in an interaction at work, and somebody says something or has this kind of body language and this sort of defensiveness gets triggered in me and I speak with a certain tone, with certain body language and this person and all of a sudden, you know, I completely lose awareness and 30 minutes later, I'm suffering so much I wake up a little bit and I wonder, how the heck did I get here? I am definitely a suffering human being I'm angry, I'm angry at myself, I don't want it to be this way, and I don't even remember how I got here. 
But, you know, to whatever degree there were some moments of awareness, even in hindsight, we could sort of see, oh, this arose, the mind took this personally, the mind interpreted it, this sound, this sight, this thought, this way, reacted in this way, and we can kind of piece together, this is how this whole mass of suffering came to be. And then uh, even in real time now, this is after the entanglement, that now I could be sitting here hating myself for having gotten entangled in this whole thing. But I'll notice when I hate myself, the entanglement, the contraction gets worse, right? And when I understand it in a more naturalistic way, oh yeah, sometimes this is how it is. Sometimes the mind takes the bait takes things personally, gets attached, reacts, reacts again. We get in a dance with everything else around us. But it doesn't have to be that way. And I can relate with wisdom. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. So you could call that relating with forgiveness or relating with patience or relating with wisdom, relating with kindness. Right? And we notice something else happens. Things get softer. Tension begins to unwind. The view, the way the mind is understanding, becomes broader, more perspective, right? Understanding as wrong as I think you are, you know, given everything emotion, you can't be any other than you are and I can't be any different than I am. And and the heart sort of blooms with this wise compassion. Oh, yeah. I don't know much, but I know it's pretty easy as conditioned human beings to suffer. And the last thing I want to do is add to it. So I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to be present, not in a tight way, because the tightness gets in the way of seeing clearly. The clarity in mindful awareness practice is very dependent on being relaxed. And that's why it takes time to practice or to develop it. Because relaxing means being undefended, which means we're actually feeling what we feel. And a lot of times we don't feel completely safe and we're definitely feeling leftover wounds from past events and interactions, right? We're dragging along, all of us, I'm guessing, we're dragging along a lot of unattended wounds. Some are buried more deeply than others. right? So when we cultivate mindful awareness, this sort of soft, this willingness to be sensitive, all of a sudden what's coming online is all the unfinished business of our lives. So don't be surprised. A lot of times people think, oh, you sit, you meditate, you must be so peaceful. And then you tell them, oh, it's like hell when I sit. Because <laughs> sometimes it is, right? Having, I mean, hopefully you're checking it out enough to know, like, hopefully some of the sits are peaceful or moments in your sit. There are moments when things settle and there's some real calm, some real settledness, sense of unity or wholeness even can develop. Some lightness, some joy can come online when you get a little momentum in the concentration. But even if you're having a good sit, then part of the side effect 
But a very important side effect is you become more sensitive. So even when the sit is so-called good, you're exposing yourself more and more. You're going to feel more and more because the whole system is becoming sensitive. So this is a thing, you know, I often joke, usually around week three. I don't say it, I try not to say it week one or two. I don't think I've said it to this group yet. But it's kind of a joke, but there's real truth. We should have a warning sign. Stacy's heard this. She's the chair of our board over here. We should have a warning sign on the building that says, beware those who enter and start your practice because you might get some initial benefits where you're feeling good, you're feeling empowered, you're feeling grounded, you're feeling like you can actually show up and do what needs to be done in your life, and you're going to become more and more sensitive. So it's like the world and all the wounds, not only your suffering, but everybody else's suffering, it's just going to start being seen and felt in living colors with uh, greater depth. And we'll be right on the edge of, on the one hand, having growing, in a sense, more equanimity, more peace, more calm. And on the other hand, just it's always, it always gets a little out of balance, more exposure to very real suffering. And when the exposure gets a little bit ahead of the equanimity, then we feel like, why is my life getting worse? Here I am being a good human being and developing mindful awareness and meditating every day, and life feels more intense. My personality, my reactivity feels more wild. But you might not actually be wild. This is where you need good friends, where you check in like, am I really losing it? You know, and they'll say, no, actually, you seem kind of more together than I've seen you in a while, right? But because you're more sensitive, what's moving motions, moods, reactivity, thoughts, it might seem more wild, but you're just having a more honest and sensitive relationship to what it is to be a human being, a feeling being, an emoting being, a human being walking around with a lot of unattended wounds, ancient wounds. Some of them are wounds that were sort of been passed on generation by generation from our ancestors. Right? Have you ever caught yourself kind of just in a moment where you see, I am just the continuation of my mom or my dad or my grandparent or, you know those neurotic threads that somehow passed on. It's not like your mom said, okay, it's time for me to infect you with the ancestral neurosis. But it's almost like that, right? (laughs) It's just that we're bathing in it for all those years, right, in the family setting. And then it's the same with cultural conditioning. Each of us were a particular cultural imprint. All the biases, all the fears around difference and class and race and gender and sex. And there's no way to have somehow avoided being conditioned by genetics, by our family, by our culture. And so that's what I mean by these wounds, this sort of, and it's real. And then the more we sit, we develop wisdom, we develop space, the space of equanimity, fearlessness, compassion, all these wholesome qualities, and we, exp- we grow sensitivity 
So be careful around that balancing. So remember the first two weeks I talked a lot about you only need to be sort of using two qualities. You want calm and you want alertness. So this is just another way of talking about calm and alertness. Right? Calm is that equanimity, that growing capacity to have space for whatever's showing up. And the alertness is realizing the depth of conditioning, realizing how wild, how uncertain, how vulnerable, how there's actually no ground for the ego. Right? Now we'll talk about more of that the last week or so. But let me open it up for discussion. I have a little bit of content I want to cover before we end at 9. I want to talk about, and so this would be good even to bring up in your sharings and your questions, but um, to begin now that we have some sense of the practice, to be noticing the mood, the attitude, and other mental qualities that, that are right there when you're doing your practice, both formally sitting you know, for your 15 minutes or 30 minutes a day, and informally as you're living your life during the day. Notice that you can be aware, mindfully aware, oh, the mood's like this now, the attitude's like this. Now this is without judgment. You're just, it's just like, oh yeah, I can be, wisdom can be aware of the mood. It's something that can be awa- we can be aware of. But like I mentioned the last two weeks, it's really good to hear people's comments. What have you been learning? What's been really challenging in your sitting, walking, or daily life practice? What questions have come up about the instructions or anything that I've said? And remember, you can say your name. It's always nice to hear your first name as well. What's com- what comes to mind? Yeah, please start us off on the chair. Thank you. My name is Chelsea, and I um I know we've talked about sleeping before, and I struggle a lot with falling asleep and like being in my head a lot when it's time for me to fall asleep. I also have a lot of nightmares, so I'm wondering how meditation can be used to aid in sleep. I find myself doing a lot of deep breathing before bed. Yeah. So when you said initially that uh, falling asleep, were you talking about doing your sitting practice or are you talking about no, just regular going to bed at night? Regular going to bed at night. Yeah. So um, it's not the perfect time to practice, but I do, I do have some thoughts about what you can do as you're getting ready for bed and then in bed, that can help sleep. But one of the I was just talking to one of our teachers today, and uh, and because uh, this person has a bad back, for several months he did most of his meditation, and he's a very um, deep meditation practitioner and longtime teacher here. And he for several months practiced on his back, and then he noticed it really disturbed his sleep cycle because with his disciplined and well-trained mind, he had been cultivating the intention to be relaxed and alert in the lying down position. So then he'd go to bed at night, and the mind was like a well-trained dog. Okay, I'll be relaxed and alert. And, you know, it wasn't so easy to do his job because 
it was like well into three or later in the morning before finally he'd get a little couple hours of sleep. So it is doing lying down practice is a good thing, but you want to make it distinct from what it's like to go to sleep at night. So like you wouldn't want to do your lying down meditation in your bed, for example, because the mind is a creature of habit. And one of the central ingredients to meditation is alertness, brightness, joy, energy. It's like half of the practice. Calm is the other half, right? Trust, release. So you don't want to cultivate brightness when it's time to go to bed. Now there's two things. Is it really time to go to bed? Like is the body and mind really ready for sleep? But let's just assume it is. And then if someone has trouble sleeping or has trouble, like you mentioned, with nightmares, the thing is the mind is pretty defenseless at night, meaning it's not so easy for wisdom to do its job and to see with a lot of breadth and depth and really understand how to be safe and like what's real and what's constructed, what problem actually needs to be addressed what problems are just the mind kind of scaring itself because it's night and the mind isn't as sharp, isn't as clear, right? So before you kind of get under the covers, it's good to process whatever's gotten stirred up during the day before you go to bed. And it's not like you want to bring all those painful things to mind and start proliferating because then you're definitely not going to fall asleep very well. So one of the ways is just to practice a little forgiveness. But that might not even be that easy to do initially. So you might even need to do a little, like there are many different ways to do this, but some version of self-love, self-compassion. So it could start with just a little gratitude reflection. Instead of bringing to mind the difficult stuff initially, just bring to mind a few moments where you really appreciated the wisdom, the skill, the patience, the resilience, and just sort of honoring the intelligence, the goodness. Oh, yeah. And it doesn't even only have to be in your own life. You could remember something you saw in another person. Basically, you're remembering, yeah, I'm exposed, I'm vulnerable, but there's real goodness, there's real beauty in this world as well. So you're balancing the mind in that way feel safe enough. And then if you feel safe enough, you might say, whatever needs to move, better to move now before I go to sleep. You know, any unfinished business. Now the key here is, don't go into the content. Any feelings that need to be felt. Let me leave it right at the level of feeling. And then just, can I feel this? Can I allow this? Can I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven? Can I trust whatever needs to be trusted right now? So you're processing the unfinished business from the day before you go unconscious, fall fall asleep. But basically the love, the self-love, the self-compassion is really helpful. It's in Buddhism, it's considered as the real protection so that, oh yeah, I don't, I can't stop, I can't eliminate all the unfinished business, but I can 
have this, it's a kind of immunity because whatever shows up, whatever haunts me at night, I will have established the intention to meet it with forgiveness and kindness and compassion. Oh yeah, I care about this. I'm not afraid. I can I can meet this with love, with compassion. So you might just play with that and we'll week five we'll dig in to the compassion and loving kindness practice. Yeah, thanks. Who'd like to go next? Yeah, please. Hi, my name is uh, Andre. I've been uh, actually trying to practice this on and off for about uh, 10 years, and it's been interesting. I've been coming here for a couple of months. I've really appreciated your guidance because it's really opened up a lot of pathways to finding some sense of what I would refer to as, in general, centeredness. Things move, but there's a place to come back to, and I'll witness that during the day. And I'm just curious because part of what I've been experiencing, and I'm hoping I'm not deceiving myself, is that of the loving, casual observer, this detached presence that isn't, quote-unquote, me, which used to be, oh, it's my thoughts and my feelings, that's me. Well, it's not me. My, whom I believe I am is actually my intentions and actions. So when I'm in this meditative state and I feel like it's actually working, there's something I think you've said before, oh, shh. It's okay. This is just a feeling. This is just a thought. Just note it. It's okay. It moves through you. And for the longest time, in trying to attempt this, it's like, who is that? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know who. They, yeah. Well, it's this sense of uh, the calm observer who wasn't mm-hmm. me, and maybe it isn't. But it's a powerful and sometimes very disturbing feeling because it's like. Okay, this is this thing that, you know, I've heard about, and it's a little alien, but it's also comforting, and it, it, it has this mixed feeling. Yeah. And so I'm hoping that what I'm, you know, just doing it right, but it's a, it's a profound experience. I want to make sure that I'm doing my best to honor it and not deceiving myself as to what it is. And I don't know if that's part of when you were breaking into this. Because I came through to the back door. For the longest time, I've been reading about this. Yeah. Oh, I read everything. Oh, great. <laughs> but being an aural person, I work as a recording engineer, it was suddenly powerful to sit in a room like this, and all these sounds started occurring. It's like, okay, this is what's happening. I'm aware of this happening let it be. And then it started happening again with other sensations of noting things. But because it's working, of course, my neurosis says, I can't trust that. (laughs) And you noticed that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you said a lot of really important things. And, and this is a phenomena that other people might recognize. So just be on the lookout how, in a sense, there's something that's still or centered or grounded, or pure, or clear, or spacious. I mean, because the word, they're just words, pointing to an experience. And the other aspect of our experience is that things are moving. Sounds are moving, sights are moving, thoughts are moving, emotions are moving, sensations are moving, right? So there's something that seems still, and there's something that feels to be moving, and the habit of the mind is to want to locate a sense of self somewhere 
Am I those thoughts that are coming and going, those sensations that are coming and going? Am I the quiet, still presence behind the scene, observing? Well, the practice is more simple and pragmatic. I mean, I could say, oh, you're neither of those two things. And in a way, that's, there's some truth to that. But maybe more useful is to say all that movement, right? Sounds are moving, sights are moving, smells and tastes are moving, sensations are moving, thoughts are moving. The six sense gates, that's what we call it in Buddhism, the five physical senses in the mind, that's the movement. And then there's knowing, awareness. But really, awareness is awareness. It's just what it is. Our practice is not to presume it's more or less than what it is. And our practice is not to presume that these movements of body and mind are more or less than what they are. Because we're training the mind to take things just as they are and not to be idealistic or romantic or presume anything. So we're living in this phenomenological, this empirical, this direct way. It's just the way it is. There's experience, which is moving, and that experience is being known. And the truth is we can't really separate the movement from it, from the experience of it being known. That's still peaceful, non-judging, right? Now, the piece I wanted to bring in, I might as well bring it in right now, is this way the mind is relating, it sort of seems like the observer is irritable or the observer is greedy in this moment or the observer has an agenda, an expectation. But any of those colorings, any of those attitude or what we might call the mood, isn't it interesting? It can be noticed too. Awareness can notice the mood. So when you feel like the awareness is tainted, distorted in some way, you've got an agenda, you want something to go away, notice how that mood or (coughs) mental quality can be noticed. And it's a movement. may feel relatively set. But when you look at irritation, for example, without being identified with it, oh yeah, there's irritation, the mind's grumpy. And you're just looking at it, but you're not attached. You're not thinking, I'm grumpy, but just that there's grumpiness. You'll see that it's in motion. Maybe you're getting more grumpy, or maybe it's fading away. But it's not a static thing. It's not really me. There isn't a me who's grumpy. There's a mental dynamic, that mood, is a, something alive, a little bit like a weather system. It could be a hot, sticky day, but it isn't stagnant. It isn't static, I should say. It isn't set. Weather is always alive with change, isn't it? It's always in process into whatever the next weather experience is going to be. It's in motion. And it's the same with moods and mind states and mental qualities. Always in motion. And that's one of the things we're distinguishing. So when we talk about nature... We're talking about the movement of the body and the mind, and we're talking about knowing. Knowing has, especially when it gets very uh, settled, and we really see the nature of knowing, it has a kind of unmoving space 
empty space-like quality to it. So there's knowing, and then there's the activity that's being known. And there's no way to know knowing. We only know knowing because things are being known. And we only know things being known because of knowing. So we don't really separate. It's sort of looking at the way it is. And if I look at the way it is this way, I see things coming and going, right? And if I look at the way it is from this angle, I see that they're being known. I notice the awareness. And that's what we call me. There's activity of the body and mind, and it's being known, and we can't really separate those two things. And the more we study that, we realize, like the question, well, where am I? We trust our direct experiencing more than does that question need to be answered. And so in Buddhism, we call that anatta, the impersonal nature. And the more this comes online, it just sort of creeps in over the years of practice. It has a profound flavor of freedom. And it really shows up in pragmatic ways. Difficult stuff happens, beautiful stuff happens. But there's just something about the body, mind, and heart that stays even. And our response is really fearless and creative and nimble in ways that we wouldn't have done 10 years ago or five years ago. And then we go, oh, this is the fruit of practice. This freedom, right? This ability to relate skillfully with whatever shows up. Well, it's profound, and it's so profound, it's been shocking to me. It's like, why? I would normally be reacting here. I would normally be saying something. I would normally be not saying something as a matter of defense, saying or not saying, and it's been this thing of, oh, uh, there I have, you know, I'm caring for two aging parents, and they're they're prone to saying things, and there's a long history, and I've been much better about, oh, this is what happens with somebody of this age and these things. That's okay. Yeah. Why should I expect different? Why should I expect a tree to be a car? They're 92. They've had a stroke. Why would you expect them to be any? And they have this whole long lineage. But as I'm experiencing this, it's a bit like, where did this come from? And it's a little intimidating, and it's pleasant, but that's also like it's easy to get addicted to this. Oh, I got this. Like, yeah. Um, but when you do get addicted or take it personally, like I'm getting wise, then notice that that thought can be known. Just keep doing the practice. That's the key. And just to sum up, because some of this may not have made sense to you, it's kind of the more subtle end of practice, just remember that the way to sum this up is the essence of a practice is something is being known. So like when you need to remind yourself, what am I doing? What's this about? We're relating to our experience of being a human being in this very simple way. Something is being known. So let me notice in terms of this moment the something that's being known. And let me notice it as something is being known. Not my mental interpretation of what's being known, but every moment really can be reduced. Beautiful moments in your life. And it doesn't take any beauty away from the moment when you realize this is being known or this is being felt. Same thing. It really just allows us to do what needs to be done as a human being. But it takes a little while to trust being that simple. Because we have an arrogant certainty that 
being a human being is complex, but that's more from the egoic point of view. From a spiritual point of view, things become more and more simple. The world still is complex, but how to be skillful is very simple. Stay at the level of something being known. Now, I just need to say this, because people misinterpret that as being passive. Oh, so I'm going to be at this level of something being known. That means I don't, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go to work. I don't have to say anything nice. You know, I don't have to do this difficult stuff of life. But it means that the doing... Oh, you might have leaned against the light. Yeah, you could just move it up a little bit. Great. <laughs> Thanks. Um, yeah, it just means that the activity will flow naturally because what would stop you from speaking or not speaking, doing or not doing, right? You're kind of taking the foot off of the brake of your personality and you're putting all the emphasis on awareness of what's moving. Something is being known. And if you start doing something that's really unskillful, something being known is going to pick it up. The wisdom of being right there and the simplicity of something being known. You'll see if you're digging a hole that's going to you know, haunt you forever or whether you're doing something beautiful. It will become more clear naturally. So instead of like walking into a situation, a difficult interaction, like I've got to do this right, try taking refuge in, I don't know what to do to be skillful here, but I do know it's helpful to be really intimate. So I'm going to be in the mode of this is being known, this is being felt, nervousness is being known, defensiveness is being felt, this isn't fair is being noticed. Right? We're just like tracking lived experience, speaking truth to power is being seen, getting prideful is being noticed. You know, one thing after another. We're just noticing it. And in that way, our life becomes self-correcting. Because the mindful awareness is like a beautiful feedback mechanism. Because in every moment that there's this is being known, then the skillfulness or unskillfulness of whatever's being known makes an impression in the heart. So the heart is sort of learning in real time, moment by moment. Because of that reflective knowing, this is how it is known. Thanks so much. Who'd like to go next? Questions? Yeah, in the corner here. I wanted to share. Um, I have a favorite poet, um, Rumi. And, of course, he has something to say about almost every subject. And so, of course, he has something to say about meditation. And so I'm going to read something that he said that I ran across recently that really spoke to me, and I hope it has something to say to this class and to you as our uh, illustrious um, teacher. Your prison is your mind, and your mind is your habit. Break the pattern and live in the moment. Mm, Beautiful, yeah. And it's like another way that Buddha talks about the same important idea is that our mind, like a prison, our mind is either our worst enemy, there's no enemy more dangerous than an untrained mind, the Buddha says, and there's no friend more protecting than a well-trained mind. And that remember, the training is really to go from being pushed around by habit, those cultural habits, the habits we got from our parents, 
and even the habits we have from our genetic conditioning. To go from that to this reflective presence. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. It's beautiful. Uh, anybody want to share something else? We have time for one or two more. Yeah, over here. Um, my name is Kelsey. Um, so you were speaking about how you get you get sensitive when you're doing mindfulness work. Um, and I know myself that um, I suffer from depression. I think I said that last week. But um, so me... And a lot of women that I know identify as like an empath. Like I, I go to a fault. Like I look at a room and I read it and I look at people and I want to be the caregiver and want to fix everybody else and put everybody else before me and um, feel like everything is... Everything is my fault, mm-hmm. um, and I'm a healthcare provider. And I had a, a a patient pass away recently, and and I questioned myself over and over again, like if I'd just done this, would there be a different outcome? And I I logically know that there wasn't, and people can re- reassure me, right? But I just harp on myself over and over and over again that Do you notice that that hurts y- yeah that that i just i just Does don't believe in my worth as a person like a lot of times right but even whether you believe in the worth as a person just seeing what the mind is doing let it break your heart like oh honey you know, in the same way, if you saw a child harming a little animal, you know, because it doesn't know better, we, we'd be really motivated to show up and try to teach the child, you know, because that empathy that you have, it's, it's really a good thing. But the question is, why isn't including how we're doing, how this heart is doing, right? And it's really impactful, like, what the mind is paying attention to. So like when you notice that going on, you might just ask yourself, well, who else is in the mix? So like this person is suffering, I'm sensitive, I'm really wanting to help, wanting to show up. And then just train the mind to get, well, how are you doing? How are you feeling? What's the feeling in your heart right now? Or in putting in your terms, you know, what's the feeling here right now? And you can even... Use that gesture where you put your hand on your heart. How are you doing? How's the heart doing right now? Do you feel safe? What would you need? What would help to feel more safe? What do you need? That's fucking hard. <laughs> yeah. But, that, but it's really good to look at, like, like rationally, wh- why wouldn't, as a caring human being, why wouldn't I care about this human being? What is it about this human being that's less or more deserving than any other? And this is the human being that's most proximate. Like, in terms of showing up to the world, this human being happens to be pretty close. (laughs) 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 And all human beings are deserving of love and kind of fierce protection, including this one. 
And in a way, this relationship we have with this body and this sensitive heart is really the model that we use to show up for others. So if we've trained ourselves, and again, by culture, by parents, by genetics, if we've been trained to be oblivious, unaware of how this body, this heart and mind is doing, then there's probably other ways that we're blocked off from what's out there. And to the degree we heal that relationship, we get interested, we learn how to show up, we learn how to have compassion, to listen deeply, to be unafraid of what we might see and feel, we get better at being empathic to what's out there. Because a lot of that wanting to take care of others is to avoid. We somehow feel we don't have the capacity to feel what's here to feel. And that we want to challenge that. Maybe it's yucky, maybe it's scary or feels overwhelming, but it still might be safe to feel what we have to feel here. Yeah. Is this related? Yeah. A little related. I also consider myself an empath, and one thing that's been really helpful for me is um, I take on a lot of people's pain pretty easily. Um, but when I find myself sort of becoming overwhelmed with that, I then try to really shift my focus and very intentionally take on people's joy and people's happiness and trying to find that to bring into myself as well, because it's, I think it's a balance Yeah. and I don't know you very well, but potentially that could be a helpful thing to try to shift focus, um, to heal yourself and bring joy and happiness into yourself. So. Yeah, and that's the Buddha teaches that, and we'll talk about this week five. The only four emotions we need is that basic goodness, like realizing this heart has the capacity to be intimate, to include. And then when that sensitive, inclusive heart runs into suffering, it's compassion. But when it runs into joy and beauty, it's mudita, is the word, appreciative joy, right? Sympathetic joy. And when it's not clear what's going on, what's moving in our lives, we call it equanimity, like being balanced with ambiguity and uncertainty and confusion. I can be intimate with that too. So if love is this capacity to include or to be intimate, to be empathic, then it needs to have that appreciation that you're talking about. So it's a really wonderful thing to bring up now. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, any last? Yeah, please. Thanks. Uh, yeah, me too. I, I worked in like the nonprofit industry, and what I realized is that if you don't take care of yourself, you can't take care of anybody else. And I think that loving yourself and being able to love yourself, then you are able to love other people too. So yeah, I had to learn that on my own too. So, and it and it's a nice theme that in you know in different ways people are bringing up. And so one of the things, just a little homework, like when you're sitting or doing your walking practice or even having moments in daily life this next week, then, because it can sound sterile when we say, oh yeah, the practice is it's just something being known. So here, a little, a little different angle on that. Then ask, what is the difference between this awareness, this something being known, and an authentic, beautiful expression of love. How is it really, is it different? Being aware, mindfully aware, how is it different 
than a, an experience of love. Anybody's reflection from your own practice tonight or in the past, as you reflect now in hindsight on some moments where you felt pretty open, pretty grounded, pretty in the moment, and now remembering it, or you could do it in real time right now, right? We all have this capacity, right, just to be, okay, there is a body, sitting body, and we're just, what is actually the difference between being mindfully aware and sort of meeting the moment with love? Any thoughts about that from your experience? Yeah, please. Um, so this actually happened this afternoon, uh, walking back from work. Um, I don't know. Yeah, you get well. The class is like not judgmental, so don't judge me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm walking back from work, and a lady with blue hair passes by, and being present in that moment was, oh, she has blue hair. But that was a judgment. And being present with love was me saying to myself, that's confidence. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, these simple examples. Now, did, did you have both of those responses? Like, yes, this was, this was a judgment. So yeah. how do we not correct it, but follow it up with compassion or something? Yeah, like and how natural that can be. And, and that's a really beautiful example because remember of all that conditioning that we all have, and we can't get rid of it, our prejudices, our biases, the conditioned mind. But remember, our first response or reaction doesn't have to be the last. I notice this a lot with my, with my spouse. Something might happen, triggers my defensiveness or my controlling tendencies, right? But I can, if I just hang in there with awareness, yeah, that first, first 10, maybe even the first 20 reactions were not so wholesome. <laughs> but then if I, if I just see, yeah, sometimes, yeah, yep. Because this is a conditioned beast here, right? So all of these sort of not-so-wholesome tendencies, of course they're going to arise, but I'm not done. And then it might be then, like then the first wholesome one might be that, oh, I'm a conditioned beast and I care about that and I'm not going to hate myself. And then it might be a whole different response to my partner. You know, like I can actually appreciate her in a, in a really wonderful way or, or whatever, or make fun of myself in a really useful way, right? So it's really cool to see that just because our first response isn't that helpful, there's another moment. Sylvia Borstein, one of our teachers in this lineage, she says, we can always write another chapter. It doesn't matter how many bad chapters we've written, the book's not done. We can write another one. Thanks so much for sharing with us. One last comment or question, yeah. Yeah, I really liked what you said, and I've heard of something called the second thought theory, and it's just the idea that um, be gentle with yourself, because the second thought is often the one that reflects the love, and the first thought is just like bias or a reaction. So I think it's actually really powerful in anti-racism training, too, is to honor your second thought. Yeah, or any kind of trying to... Because... uh, you know, the survival instinct, which actually gets triggered a lot, 
uh, whenever we're nervous. And, you know, as a social being, a lot of the survival is about, like, fitting in. It's about group dynamics. So these biases and tendencies get triggered as if it's a matter of survival. And so they're very, very primitive. And so primitive in the sense of, like, based on, like, you know, around difference and around, like, where we belong, where we don't belong. So like you said, if we can just learn to be okay with being a conditioned beast and not assume it's personal, what shows up when we're honest, and then we can find a way into really beautiful qualities, like you said. Yeah, thanks. Hi, I'm Chris. Is it sufficient, sufficient to just say, I don't know? Like when I have an experience with somebody where I'm starting to be reactive to realize that I don't know, I don't know them, I don't know what, I don't know. Like my perception of what's happening isn't real because <clears throat> I'm not them. Yeah. But it doesn't, it doesn't take us off. I mean, we still have to show up in life and do stuff. But showing up with humility, I mean, it's such a powerful move. Like in a meeting, even in like an important business meeting or whatever, to, to sort of really, but not as a move, not as a strategic move, but just like, you know what? I don't really know what we should do here. Here are some thoughts, but I'm not stuck to any of them because I know I don't know. But that, that gets people's attention. <laughs> or I do that a lot in a relationship with my wife again, you know, just like we have to figure something out and to kind of start in that place. I know that I don't know, so let's just start talking about it. We might find our way into some resolution, like what we're going to do. <coughs> Well, we may not be right, but we'll figure it out as we go. I, actually, I was referring more to like their intention, like yeah. not knowing what they're about or what their intention was that I took a specific way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see what you mean. Thanks. If it's quick. Uh, I'll start with saying I know that I don't know. <laughs> and, and I'm sure about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure about that. <laughs> Uh, does the mind necessarily have to have a language because, and I feel like sometimes, uh, like this knowing, uh, and practicing this knowing, uh, would all come together were I to never have to speak again and just act because I don't know if I'm as, uh, good at labeling things in English uh, in the back of my mind so that I work with them, but more of like a, just being aware of a thing and not really giving it a name. Yeah. No, you don't need to n- name anything. You don't u- need to use mental noting, but you do need to notice. And the noticing needs to be, I don't know if precise is the right word, but it has to be real, like embodied real, not conceptual real. The only place you need concept is if we're talking with a Dharma friend or somebody who's practicing or in this kind of context. But, you know, we can kind of figure it out with each other, with language. It, but it's easy to get stuck on the language, and it's easy to, when you're sitting, to be thinking about practicing. So your point is actually really important because it's a non-conceptual practice. Now, you can use thoughts skillfully to direct awareness to the reality, the embodied reality of the present moment. But you don't need to name anything. 
And let's leave it here. Let go of the words. Let's just take 30 seconds or so. Feel the body sitting and appreciate a few seconds of silence. Be aware of one more breath in and out. Feeling at home. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org.